This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Bast! Writing GMCs! Kim Philby! And the dread return of Eric the Lava Lamp. The Unknown Army's role-playing game is kickstarting for a new edition right now. And Atlas Games needs your help to make it the greatest new edition of Unknown Armies it can possibly be. Unknown Armies is an occult RPG about broken people conspiring to fix the world. As obsessive denizens of the supernatural underground, you scheme to bend reality before reality bends you. Find out how far you'll go to get what you want. Battle forces fighting tooth and nail to reshape the world into something you'll despise. Master or be mastered by shock gauges, the game's mechanical spine. Each PC can suffer emotional trauma in areas like helplessness, violence, or the unnatural. Any of these can harden you or break you. The occult and unnatural in Unknown Armies are like a secret world that Tim Powers and James Elroy might conspire to create. Your obsessions and sacrifices define reality, but only if you're willing to risk it all. What would you risk to change the world? Your friends? Your family? Your sanity? Your life? Magic finds a way to ask the very most from you until you change the world or are left with nothing. Unknown Armies was created by Greg Stolze and John Tynes. Originally released in 1998, it became an instant classic. Now comes a new edition more ambitious than any other with meaty changes to the unknown army's cosmos substantial revision to the rules of play keyboard curling updates for the internet age shudder before the fervid majesty of its prestige format a three book set with all the awesome stretch goals and add-ons you've come to expect but greg john and atlas games need your help to make this new edition happen search kickstarter for unknown armies or follow the link at atlas-games.com back unknown armies today and change your reality change everyone's reality It's time again for Among My Many Hats, the segment in which the covert self-promotion of the entire podcast is replaced by the overt self-promotion of one of us talking about one of our projects. And can of late, uh, since I've been wearing a couple of secret hats or semi-secret hats for uh, the bulk of a year and continue to do so, Ken, you're getting way ahead of me in the hat parade, as it were, especially with your uh, monthly Ken Writes About Stuff project for Pelgrane Press, in which you provide uh, a, a beautiful booklet-sized quantity of PDF gaming goodness. And in this case, uh, the most recent one refers to the Egyptian cat goddess Bast. Uh, so we're going to talk for a little while about the uh, things that you discovered and thunk up while you're thinking about Bast. So uh, let us start off with the historical Bast. What do we need to know about Bast in order to talk about Bast? Well, I think the only thing we really need to know about Bast is that, as you say, she's an Egyptian cat goddess. That has been more than enough for pulp authors from Sax Romer to H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft to discuss her, uh, not hampered by any other knowledge, although, as it transpires, Sax Romer's uh, The Green Eyes of Bast turns out to be based on a genuine 
Egyptian theological concept, which was that Bast, at least, would perhaps transmigrate into her worshippers, that there is a a common inscription, especially in the late Ptolemaic era, when Bast became huge, um, that uh, the power of Bast dwells within, and that would be sort of a thing that you would say, and to the extent anyone knows anything, the theory is that as the time that Bast has become this huge uh, cult of uh, domestic protection, not just against mice, as one might assume a cat goddess, but also against diseases and demons, that uh, you would be able to, if you were a proper scion of Bast, if you were a good uh, a Bast priest, then you would have the power of Bast within you. And so there was a degree of possession to Bast, at least, that is not necessarily true in post-Egyptian religion. Of course, Saxdromer takes it all the way into really exciting cat assassin goddessry, which is awesome. But the basics of Bast are that she almost certainly began as a lion goddess. It is often difficult to tell, given Egyptian artistic uh, traditional depictions of things, whether you're looking at a, a very large cat or a very small lion, especially since uh, the Egyptian desert cat looks more uh, wild catty than our current uh, domestic cat does. But uh, Bast begins at the town of Bast, and again, we don't know if the town was called Bast and they named their lion goddess Bast after her, or if the town was called uh, Per Bast, meaning the town of Bast, because that was where the lion goddess got worshipped, and we built the first temple to her, so haha. But the point, there's a bunch of lion goddesses and lion, uh, and generally female predatory deities in sort of the, what you might consider the pattern of ancient Egyptian lore. There is the, um, uh, the goddess that is the uh, distant goddess who slaughters mankind until she is placated with beer disguised as human blood, and then becomes drunk and goes to sleep, and then uh, rock and sort of domesticate her and turn her into a demon killer on his own side. And that eventually becomes that Ra adopts her, which of course Im- implies that he marries her. So she gets sort of involved into the Egyptian pantheon. So at the very earliest basics, she is a lion or other dangerous predatory feline who is uh, a threat to mankind until Ra domesticates her. And that I think is where why she becomes the cat because domestication is so central to her myth and because uh, Per Bast becomes this huge uh, pilgrimage city. Uh, Bast is hugely important, even in the Old Kingdom. She's worshipped, uh, co-worshipped with Hathor. She's more important than Isis, certainly, uh, at that point. So it's not until, depending on how you read the data, between 1100 or 1200 BC and 1000 BC, that she becomes reliably depicted as a cat. And this is roughly the same period that a Libyan dynasty takes over uh, northern Egypt or lower Egypt. They take over around and they make uh, Per Bast the capital. And so uh, Bast becomes the state cult uh, and Bast definitely takes on the shape of a cat. And we begin to see domestic cats show up in Egyptian art all over the country, which implies that cat domestication at least spreads outside temple precincts and becomes a more common thing by the uh, 1200, uh, uh, BC era thereabouts. And so, but once you get into the new kingdom, uh, Bast is now both fully domesticated and fully Egyptianized. And that's when, uh, under the Hellenistic era, she really takes off. It gets to the point that if you're going to be named after a god, the most common god to be named after is Osiris. This is under the Ptolemies. And the second most common god to be named after is Bast. So she is uh just immensely widespread cult 
Uh, it goes as far as Rome. It goes as far as Southern France. It goes into Spain. And then, uh, obviously Christianity comes along and sort of, you know, tamps that all down. But for a while, she is perhaps outside the sort of core mythological story. She is the most important goddess. And you can argue in terms of presence in people's lives, she may even be the most important goddess, more important until the very late period than Isis, certainly. Now, to indulge in irresponsible speculation, which of course is our uh, stock and trade here on the podcast. Yes. Um, the idea of an enemy god that is then tamed and brought into the pantheon kind of suggests that there may have been another culture that was conquered and subsumed. Do we have evidence for that, or is that just pure irresponsible speculation? I think the general people who want to make those sorts of guesses make the guess that rather than the Libyans being conquered and their cat entity being domesticated, the speculation is that uh, the Libyans, when they conquered Egypt, they introduced their cat goddess into a pre-existing Egyptian uh, pantheon entity that uh, rather than the the original distant goddess representing a culture that is conquered, she represents the fact that the Egyptians are spreading out into the desert and, and civilizing it as opposed to that there is one specific tribe that they, uh, you know, subdue and then they take their lion goddess into Egypt because the same myth is told of Sekhmet and of Mafdet and of uh, Mut and of Neith and Tefnut and Wazret all of whom eventually become titles that you can use for Bast. Although Sekhmet, because she is so strongly lion indicated, is like one of the um, uh, sort of great dualities that the, 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 the line is she rages as Sekhmet and plays as Bast, implying that the distant goddess can either be dangerous or she can be friendly and it's up to you to face right. Now, the fact that the cult uh, grows not only becoming very, very important in Egypt, but going all the way to uh, France and spreading all over the place implies that there was some sort of unmet social niece that the cult of Bast began to fulfill. So what was its its social role in Egypt and I think more intriguingly in uh, other cultures that it was then introduced into? I think one of the important things that Bast provides, I mean, she provides a couple of things. First of all, she's a, definitely a female goddess. Uh, she's never depicted as male. There's no gender switching for Bast. And she is a goddess of specifically domestic concerns. Uh, she protects uh, ch- children. She protects against diseases. She protects uh, households, uh, you know, sort of a goddess of cleanliness because cats are cleanly. And so all of those concerns mean that if you are a woman, often you are kept out of the greater scope of, of Western Mediterranean religious life because the big gods are the gods. Um, and certainly in a, in a, um, in a Roman context, that's true. And so the notion of having a goddess who is specifically around the house to help you is a very popular concept. So it spreads, I think, as uh, sort of, uh, domestication spreads. Literally, you get the, the notion that, well, we have Hestia, who is the goddess of the hearth, or Vesta is the goddess of the hearth, and she is obviously very important and very Roman and very hardcore. But, you know, if you don't want to bother Vesta about something, um, Bast is more approachable. And I think that that, in a way, that's part of why Christianity spread so fast is because it has a very strong appeal to, uh, to women. And therefore, obviously, if you're going to worship someone, you know, it doesn't matter who the, the dad of the house worships if the mom of the house is the one whose job it is to, you know, buy the idols and whatnot. So. Right. And it also suggests that, uh, as society becomes more urbanized, the idea of having an earth goddess 
as the main uh, goddess that not the main goddess of the pantheon, but the main one that you are interested in worshiping uh, kind of falls away. If you're not, you know, working on a farm, but you're in a, a city, the focus of feminine power shifts to the uh, household. And so that also maybe suggests why uh, Bast becomes uh, more of a thing in that she is uh, her, the, the economic activities that she's associated with are more relevant to people's uh, daily lives as they uh, uh, move off the farm and into a more settled environment. Yeah, it's certainly true that most of our information about Bast and most of our evidence of Bast ritual comes from urban urbanization. Uh, Parabast is a big city and it's a big pilgrimage city. Uh, as early as the 9th century BC, maybe even earlier than that, 10th century BC, the pilgrimage to Bast is like the Mardi Gras for the whole ancient Mediterranean. The Phoenicians make jars and bowls and cups depicting the pilgrimage to Bast that are sold in Lebanon and are sold in Spain. Like you buy uh, uh, New Orleans Mardi Gras or Rio Carnival shirts in Luxembourg, even if you've never been to any of those places, you can still buy those shirts. The the the, the cult of Bast already has a cachet and a souvenir quality for centuries, even before we reach that urbanization. And I think that the the role of women can be detected by the fact that the cult of Isis takes very specific steps to try and co-opt the cult of Bast. There's a phrase that, that begins to be uh, current in the inscriptions: uh, "The soul of Isis, Ba Aset." is present in Bast. So they use the the pun of the soul of Isis sounding like the word Bast to say Isis is the same as Bast. So when you're worshiping Bast, you're really worshiping Isis. So worship Isis. So there, there's definitely a, con a, a conflict or not a conflict, but a competition for that religious market share, if you will. And uh, I think that you can, you can definitely make arguments. I think overwhelmingly about feminization of the cult of Bast nine tenths of the, of the inscriptions to Bast, where people would say, Bast, help me, such and such. The ones that are signed are 90% female uh, inscriptions. And so it's the actual worship of Bast day to day is, is a female worship. And I, and as, as I say, or as you say, uh, urbanization is another strong part of that. But some of that may be we find more relics in urban environments. So we don't know, you know, what some Joe farmer out on the edges of nowhere might have worshipped because his farm fell apart and we haven't dug up the one piece of inscribed pottery that he had, uh, but we've dug up thousands of pieces of inscribed pottery and thousands of mummified cats from various valleys around uh, Bubastus, which is what the Greeks named Perbaset, and uh, Thebes and Karnak and other places. And so we have definite evidence of an urban cult of Bast. And being associated with festivals is, of course, uh, great marketing. You're the, you're the fun deity. Uh, you're the uh, festival deity, and so it's, I can certainly see a situation where the uh, more straight-laced uh, uh, priestesses of Isis are looking to get in on that uh, market share. And certainly the idea that everybody has cat memorabilia uh, that they're taking and buying and taking around with them in no way comports with our modern world. That has no, no parallel. We have advanced well beyond such yeah. primitive beliefs. Because, uh, you know, it's not like we use our most advanced technologies in order to spread cat pictures uh, around to one another. That, that would be, be crazy, a, talk. A crazy talk. No, it's only nuclear, nuclear equations and uh, important think pieces about uh, the homeless. That's all that goes on the internet. Um, I should mention at this, while we're talking about the cult, that indeed... Uh, in Egypt, according to Herodotus and um, uh, Diodorus, uh, if you kill a cat, um, uh, you are put to death. So Lovecraft's Ulthar was actually 
Ptolemaic Egypt. Uh, that was the law back in the, uh, or, and pre-Ptolemaic, the very, very late, uh, uh dynasties there. Um, uh, 20, uh, the 28th and 29th dynasty. The law was that if you killed a cat or in fairness, an ibis, uh, you would be put to death, but you know, it's more fun to say cat. Right. Um, well, that suggests the, that uh, the influence of toxoplasmosis, uh, changing human behavior, goes goes back a ways. It's, well, um, I don't think toxoplasmosis gondii merely came out with the Hearst papers. I think it predates that somewhat. So the uh, interesting thing here is that we're hearing about a cult that is actually much more uh, benevolent and embracing and, in fact, uh, you know, fun and festival-oriented than the way that Bast is normally depicted in Pulp Fiction as a scary uh, sort of vengeful uh, cat demon, although anyone who's ever pet a cat for uh, one second longer than that cat wants to be <laughs> petted uh, knows the dual nature of, of cats. Um, so how do we uh, turn, uh, is there a way to sort of create uh, uh, scenarios in any game system that would sort of turn that on its head and focus on uh, the uh, fun uh, em- embracing side of uh, Bast and have the uh, heroes be fighting on Bast's side to do something? Um, you absolutely could do that. Um, I think that the notion of a modern cult of Bast that is, uh, uh, like like I say, dom- uh, domestic and urban and female-oriented, those would be the kinds of guys I would think that you, as um, uh, k- katana-wielding trench coat having mages might want to fight on the side of, as opposed to any of the other cults that are available in such a urban fantastic world. I think one of the things that makes it, I mean, I think you might be a little bit self-conscious about like, you know, we're the warriors of Bast because it does sound a little silly to be the kitty warriors. But on the other hand, as you, you know, maybe um, have been the warriors of Ariok and Odin and Votan and whatever else, maybe Bast is actually more your speed. Maybe that's a better thing to fight for than a god that is the uh, chooser of the slain in battles. Right. And and you want a, a god whose, you know, main goals are to... uh keep the mice away, find a nice patch of sun, right? That is the yeah. god of civilization. Right, absolutely. That is the god of keeping everything together instead of uh, moving toward the uh, apocalypse. The god of canned food and scritches is a much better god than most of them. <laughs> right, because if, you know, if Cthulhu rises, that's uh, that's no more tender vittles. So Bast uh, is going to help out with that one. Um, so very briefly, you uh, also look at a whole bunch of different uh, game systems, not coincidentally Palgrain ones, and find different... Uh, premises and story hooks for them. So how do you bring Bast into a trail of Cthulhu game? Well, like uh, I normally do, I have a million different possible readings of Bast from uh, Bast is uh, one of the gods of Earth or or an elder goddess. Uh, That's the sort of standard reading to uh, Bast is a uh, a, uh, offspring of Shabnigarath. Uh, Bast is um, uh, an incarnation, one of the uh, enablers of Nirlathotep. That comes out of Robert Bloch, out of the Brood of Bubastus who has a great uh, monster called the Chewer of Corpses, which is a creation of magical genetic engineering uh, in a, a tin mine in Cornwall. So that's a pretty great monster. So uh, she's in there. And um, the notion of, uh, you know, Bast being just one of the many animal-headed gods and our domestication of Bast bec- can then become a, sig- a symbol for the way that we desperately domesticate the truths of the mythos in all concepts, because of course, in your, your strong, purest mythos, all evidence of the divine, all evidence of the numinous is actually the poison of the mythos working its way through our perception. And 
whether you're worshiping God or Jesus or Krishna or Bast, you're actually worshiping something really, really horrible. And those are just little masks that we've constructed for ourselves. And it's more, it's similar levels of, uh, of uh, Frisson to reverse Bast while not making uh, the blasphemy sort of front and center the way it might be if you did it with Jesus. Um, uh, and I think that can be one of the great roles of, of Bast in a Trail of Cthulhu game. In uh, Ashen Stars, you pay a little homage to a classic original series episode, uh, Cat's Paw by Robert Block. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? Uh, in Ashen Stars, I present a scenario in which you are on uh, the world Tannis. And, uh, you get there through whatever sort of, there's like three hooks that bring you there. Um, and of course, Tannis has a godlike entity in it, uh, who calls herself Bast and wanders around. And so the city of Tannis is full of cats. And if you can think back to what that would look like in Star Trek with all of them walking around on that set on stage nine with the big purple rocks behind them and then a million cats loose <laughs> with Captain Kirk trying to talk the, the high leaders of the planet into something, I think that could be fun. So I present, um, uh, of what the other races see as uh, when they see uh, uh, ta- uh, Bast's true form. So the Bala, uh, the Durug, the Kuchthuk, and the Tavok all have their own cat uh, imprint in their mind, and it's it's the species from their planet that they uh, realize. And then there's how do you deal with the problem of a godlike entity that everyone on the planet kind of likes? And maybe it's to- toxoplasmosis. Maybe it's just that the godlike entity, as you say, is better than most godlike entities and why, you know, uh, rock the boat. And, uh, do you, you know, uh, free them from their, from their slavery to this godlike entity or do you just try and get away yourselves and never tell anyone? And that's sort of the, 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 the premise of that. So it's a godlike entity story and a cat's paw story. Uh, and in Time Watch? In Time Watch, uh, Bast is a time traveler. She has a uh, army of um, uh, the Remek Bast, which means people of Bast in ancient Egyptian. And those are her agents who can turn into cats and travel through time. So obviously I am missing my bet by not writing a series of young adult uh, time travel novels. <laughs> um, and this was my excuse to go and look up famous cats of famous people, any of whom might be agents of Bast. Uh, Muhammad, of course, famously had a cat. Um, uh, that he, uh, the cat went to sleep on his robe and he cut the robe off of his arm rather than disturb the cat's rest. So cats have got a, uh, a somewhat elevated position in Islam. So that's kind of neat. Um, uh, Lord Byron, of course, has a, has a cat. Samuel Johnson famously has his cat Hodge, um, who is memorialized in, in poetry. Um, uh, Charles Lindbergh had a cat. Winston Churchill had three cats. Uh, and you can go through that and then through all the famous, uh, cat moments in history and, the question being, has Bast actually in you know got her claws into history so deeply that to remove her changes history more than to let her do whatever it is she wants to do? And how do you control um, uh, this sort of uh, amazing time travel conspiracy when its biggest threat seems to be, hey, give everyone cats? Yeah, maybe that's uh, much better than whatever else would occupy uh, that uh conspiratorial niche uh, if she were uh, suddenly uh, kicked out the cat door. But, uh, but for example, uh, Nikola Tesla learned all about electricity by petting a cat when he was three years old. And if that's part of their conspiracy, do we take Tesla out of the timeline? What's going on here? Yeah, because obviously cats cats like a well-heated abode. That, that, mm-hmm. makes, that makes sense. Um, and then finally, quickly, uh, 13th Age. What does Bast uh, do for us in uh, 13th Age? The uh, I, I, I wrote Bast up as an icon. Uh, she can replace, uh, one of your, 
other icons, uh, the priestess or the prince of shadows are sort of like her role, or she can be the first icon of the 14th age who has shown up and is re- getting ready to replace uh, the 13th age as soon as she gets settled in. And so you have the possibilities of, of Basto as an icon. I wrote up uh, the Malkin or cat people as a, um, uh, as a playable race in 13th age. So you can start off and play cat folk. Um, and then I think there's a market for that. The role, I, I would hope so. And then the role of, uh, Bast in your 13th age game can be kind of a mystery and a wonder that the GM may or may never reveal. And if you are, uh, associated with her, uh, maybe that gets you into more trouble with the old icons or maybe the old icons as they will. Some of them agree with Bast and some of them don't agree with Bast. She's, you know, buddies with the elf queen or the high druid. She's, not so fond of the Orc Lord, because Orcs eat cats. Uh, well, the news that the 14th Age might be coming is definitely uh, an indicator that we should uh, get out of this hut and into the next one. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, we hear the GM making strange voices and moving their face in untoward ways and raising their arms up and down as if to gesture meaningfully because the GM is in the throes of portraying game master characters. Which is your preferred term, Robin, for what we grew up as calling NPCs. Uh, and do you want to briefly, uh, knock that pin over before we get into how to make GMCs, uh, not, uh, lame? 
Yeah, so I, I'm doing my best uh, and, and have done since the, uh, the the days of Over the Edge to deprecate NPCs because it defines them by what they are not, uh, which, uh, unless we are being all Sartrean about it, uh, seems like a terrible way to define something. So uh, non-player characters doesn't really tell you anything, but the fact that they are GM characters, characters controlled by the GM, is explanatory. And I think, therefore, uh, despite the legacy of NPC, uh, a superior term. Um, so what I wanted to look at in particular was uh, sort of a twofold look. First of all, in terms of if you are writing an adventure to be played by uh, another GM, what information do you have to provide to them and in what form to make that GM see maximally playable when they hit that part in the adventure? And uh, then I think uh, partway through, if you, we can then sort of reverse engineer these thoughts into if you are about to run an adventure written by somebody else and they don't provide you the information that you need to play the character or just you want to find out if they do or not, you can sort of supply these uh, elements and kind of put notes in your margins and figure out how to best and most easily play a, a variety of Game Master characters. When you read adventures or scenarios, particularly ones that are not uh, just uh, moving you from one fight encounter to the next, but are based to some degree on character interaction, whether that be the uh, revealing of clues and information in an investigative scenario or the uh, intrigue in a political uh, scenario, you uh, then get into the realm of uh, descriptions where the GMCs really matter. There's extended uh, interaction with them. And so as a GM, what I want to see when I hit a chunk of text that describes a character are things that I can actually take and use when that character appears in play. And that seems like it should be pretty straightforward, but if you look at a lot of uh, ways that scenarios are written, there's a way that's easy to write about a character and introduce them to the GM, but that doesn't take the extra step of making that maximally playable. Uh, particularly, you often get a chunk of just sort of the character's backstory, their uh, history. But when you meet a person in uh, life, or when you write a scene featuring a new character in a novel or a screenplay or, or what have you, they don't just spill out all of the details of their uh, biography to you. They react to you in a particular way. And so uh, what I'm proposing is that as scenario writers, those of you listening, uh, think about what it is that I as a GM actually need in order to portray that character in a fun engaging and informative way. And I would start by suggesting the following uh, bullet points. You want to tell us what that character is going to want in an encounter that will probably come up when the PCs interact with that character and how they're going to get it. And the character's backstory may feature to some extent in why they want what they want or how they've been trained to try to get things, but it's not the most immediate salient thing because the character isn't going to start reeling off his story. And in fact, a lot of the time, these backstory descriptions then go with a character who is uh, secretive or has no reason to share the information that is provided. And so there's a big chunk of text that will never come up in play and that the GM doesn't necessarily immediately see how to activate 
uh, when they get to it. Uh, Ken, what would your number one tip for writing up a, a GMC for uh, character interaction scenes be? For a scenario, I think that there's sort of a, a player-facing tip and a story-facing tip. The player-facing tip is you have to make sure that they can tell them from all the other GMCs, and that's really just a practical note. And it can be, this character scratches their ear when they lie, or it can be, this character is a super supercilious jerk, and, uh, you know, make sure that all the characters aren't supercilious jerks, so don't, like, investigate, you know, the, you know... A British gentleman's club investigates something else, but you can, or if you are, make sure that he's a surpriseless jerk who scratches his ear when he, when he lies, but there has to be some sort of player facing way that they can twig onto. And it might even be, just be a factoid. Like he, he loves egg salad or something, whatever the thing is that the players will re remember and associate with that guy so that they can sort them out from all the other GMs who let's face it, are going to be played by the same non Meryl Streep level GM. That is you. Um, so you have to give them individuality in that sort of description or, or straight up uh, acting notes. Right. And when you create those notes, you have to bear in mind, what it is that's likely to be happening in the scene. So right, yeah. if the hook is that they really like egg salad, you make sure that they meet that character at breakfast. In the diner. <laughs> in the diner. And he extols the virtues of egg salad as his way of putting them off guard or ingratiating himself to a, or whatever. You know, tie that factoid into the tactic that the character is using to get what they want. Because, again, you don't want to specify that the character scratches his ear when he lies, but not have any suggestion of why he would lie. You've got to match those to what is actually going to happen in the scene. So the character who scratches his ear when he lies should be lying a lot in the scene that most likely is going to occur when the uh, characters meet him. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the other half of that, then, like I say, the, the story half or the, uh, or the other part of the, uh, of the um, believable or the important believable, GMC is that they need to have more than just one job to do. I mean, if you, if he, all he is, is just the cop who says, yes, uh, the footprints lead West. Great. That's fine. But I think, uh, like a proper television episode, a character should have more than one job to do in it, or else you've wasted uh, screen time. You've wasted money. You know, you, you can, you can only have seven actors for this piece. So the characters have to do more things. So you should look at that cop and you can say, okay, can that cop come back? He's then the cop of the crime scene. Can he also be moonlighting as a security guard here? And that, provides a depth to the character. You get to play him twice. They get to recognize him. They get to have a build-on interaction with him. But also, it gives the the players a question. It's like, this cop is showing up a lot of places. Is he important to the story? And so there's no sense, oh, this is the throwaway GMC. We can ignore him, right? There's always going to be something else. So I'm not saying put them into every scene unless, again, the story demands that, but try and make sure that they have more than one value. And that even if they're just the, the crime scene cop, that there can be a moment in the scenario where the players think, we should go back and talk to that crime scene cop because we need to know if he smelled egg salad at the time of the attack or whatever. And so make sure that if the character is only an in a clue pellet dispenser, give him a second pellet if you can. Make sure that there's something else that the player will approach him for so that he just doesn't become a Johnny one note. And what they might as well have found is a matchbook with the uh, nightclub on it and the words footprints going to the west underneath. Right. Right. Um, you also want to balance that out, though, is you may have some characters, particularly in an investigative scenario, whose only function is to 
point to the elevator or say that there's no security camera footage or whatever. And there it's perfectly acceptable to sketch them really, really simply and not give them a lot of information. And because the characters are just going to uh, note that bit of information and move on. So you also don't want to create the sense of there being a red herring by uh, taking a character who is, uh, you know, essentially really is just a device and fleshing them out with a whole bunch of stuff that makes them seem more important than they really are. You want to focus your energies on a core number of cast members that are going to keep coming back and are going to be interesting. And it's okay to have the occasional, you know, shopkeeper who just says, oh, yeah, I saw them running down there. Sorry, I got to get back to polishing uh, the silverware. Right. And then uh, and indicate, though, to the GM, which or which, uh, which you can do just by, you know, if you only have three lines of text about a character, that's implicit that they're not that interesting and mm-hmm. they're just there to convey information. And so as a GM, if you pick up a scenario and you see that there's a lot of uh, backstory uh, that can't, doesn't necessarily reach the uh, players or that the, uh, you know, describes the character's sort of big picture motivations, but doesn't explain why they're in that shop at that time in order to spot the guy uh, pickpocketing the uh, uh, enemy agent, that you find ways to adjust that and add things and adapt them to make them more uh, playable. So that if it doesn't give you a cool gesture or voice to play just right in the margins you know this is your uh, peter laurie character or you know this is the guy who uh, uh fidgets nervously when uh confronted because he's got this you know whole other connection to the case that he uh, doesn't want to expose and so you can then uh you know build on what you've been given because when you obviously when you're playing the game uh you may have read the scenario you know the night before or even uh, you know, hours before running the game, but there's a lot of text to run into. And once you get to the scene, you're going to have to very quickly refresh uh, your memory. And whether that's a matter of highlighting uh, on your printout of your PDF, the uh, elements that you want to emphasize, or in fact, adding those elements to the description so that you can play the characters more interestingly, uh, that you, you can do that. And as you go through, that will help you understand what is going on in the scenario and to help bring it to life for you. And you may find that there are characters that you don't want to play the way that they're written. Uh, you may have already played the Walter Brennan old coot character a little too much. So you might want to, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you don't want to go to that well again. So you could change him to a, you know, a, a different variety of gas station owner or, uh, what have you. Um, now I often reference, uh, character actors, especially classic character actors, but I sort of wonder uh, how effective that is because uh, it doesn't take you too many words to say, this is a, you know, if you know your old movies, this is a Walter Brennan type. That's not a huge waste of space. But I don't know um, in our modern world where people uh, only get to watch new mo- or older movies on TCM and they're not all over the place they were, where they were when we were coming up, whether that is useful or just something that will... Uh, cause people to have to look up who Walter Brennan is. <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of the danger with anything, right? I mean, you can, uh, I think it's probably better to assume, uh, the, a fallen world and that people won't know who Walter Brennan is. So you can write crazy old coot prospector type, except in, uh, modern day Boston. And so the character will now know what it is supposed to be, even if they've never seen or heard of Walter Brennan, because that sort of meme has stuck, uh, and they can sort of do us, a. a 
an old guy on a crazy yeah, old they, they know the parody of that right. character even yeah. if they don't know the, the actor but this is not a meditation on the on on the culture that is lost and is fallen in ruins around us robin this is a gaming hut segment it's entirely happier than that right i think another thing that you can do to make uh gms uh playable is or gmc's playable is to provide them with an agenda, obviously. And I don't know if that's sort of inherent, uh, that you, of course, they, they should all have an agenda. But if an agenda, if a GMC, and I, I agree that you can have important versus unimportant ones. I'm just saying that everyone should have one more dimension than you think they do. And if that means that your third dimension, three dimensional characters have a fourth dimension, great. But I think that you need to have, uh, a, a reason to fall back for the GM to know what that guy wants in the moment. So if it's a cop, maybe he just wants to, you know, shunt uh, well-meaning investigators away. If he's a cop, maybe he wants to recruit people for the neighborhood watch because there's been a lot of uh, cultist crime in this neighborhood. If he's a cop, maybe he wants to keep an eye on these uh, characters until uh, the detective can get here and look them over. I mean, and you just need to know what it is that even that one moment cop or that one moment shopkeeper wants so that if the players... And I know that this has never happened, Robin, but it could happen. If the players do something unexpected, you know how that character will react because you know what their real agenda is, as opposed to simply, uh, my, I was told to deliver this clue pellet to you. I don't know what I'm doing now. Right. I'm existentially torn. Right. And, and <laughs> it not only should, should it specify what the character wants, but what the character will likely want from the PCs when they show up. Yes, no, ideally, you don't say that what this character wants is world peace, because that's irrelevant, unless right. there's an actual world peace component to the to the uh, scenario. It's what the character wants in the moment or in the context of the story or from nosy Parker investigators, right? Right. Um, and it could be, you know, the character wants to sign them up to go campaign for the uh, for the peace candidate in the election, you know, and that's a, a, an example of taking a... Uh, sort of a general uh, objective and turning it into a specific agenda. Because uh, something that also comes up a lot in interactive scenes is that the players will get into the scene and then they won't really actually know when, when they start what they should be asking. They'll kind of pause. And and so um, what I you know often tend to do is make is if they pause, the GMC takes control of the scene and starts you know uh, determining what their uh, political affiliations are and if they're favorable uh, telling them to come down to the rally the other night or uh, starts pumping them for information that they want. And so uh, that can, uh, so instead of a big pause at the beginning of the scene, that uh, sort of creates a, a push that the players can then start to push uh, back against. Because of course, once they start to realize that, you know, they're being handed petitions to sign, that the scene is getting away from them and they have to then uh, get the upper hand. And so it, it uh, not only protects you when the players do something unexpected, but just when the players kind of start a scene and then go, uh, uh yeah. Which again is, is uh, something that happens if all that they know is that this character is influential or important. And then, so they've got a meeting with the guy in his club and then there's, you know, 15 minutes of them trying to pretend to be polite, uh, uh, well, um, uh, schooled people, um, when their instincts are all just to murder hobo the guy. Right. And so that wastes a lot of time. So if that they, they're in the guy's club and so the guy can say, I presume that you've heard the good news of Isis and how she's a better goddess than Bast. Then they're like, uh, that wasn't really what we were here for. We were here about those murders. And so they can 
you know, maybe Have tried you ever it in contemplated there. the majesty of the egg salad? The egg salad sandwich. Uh, if you'll wait here, I'll have Morgenstern make one. You'll never be satisfied again with a meal until you've had one of Morgenstern's egg salads. So. Um, well, this is making me hungry for egg salad, so I think <laughs> it's time for us to uh, nip out, uh, have a brief snack, and then uh, reunite uh, for our upcoming hunt. Dice. Dice love you. Now, finally, you can display this mutual love affair to the jealous gaze of admiring friends. With Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. A gorgeous coffee table art photo book all about Dice. The most adventurous project yet from our friends at Askfagelm. Explore every side of Dice through the brilliant lens of photographer Mans Daneman. After hours of photography, real, actual, no Photoshop photography, you can gaze at wonder at Burning dice. Fireworks melty dice. Oiled dice. Laser dice. Rainbow making dice. Kaleidoscope dice. Cthulhu dice that, with the aid of an octopus, latched out at the photographer's knee and sent him to surgery. And generally, dice, dice, dice. Want highlight photos as posters, canvas, or gallery prints? Ask Fagelm has you covered. With their Kickstarter, Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. Go to Kickstarter and search Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. This show also made possible by generous patrons exactly like... Tennant Reed. Wesley Griffin. Alex Johnston. Brent Brown. And the Great Ghoul. Join their gold-dappled ranks by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. The retinal scan that you had to undergo in order to listen to this segment surely informs that you that you once more entered the heavily redacted precincts of the Tradecraft Hut. And this Tradecraft Hut comes to us uh, courtesy of a uh, topic request from Patreon patron Jeff Cars. In fact, this is a topic that we've had in our list of possible topics, I think, since episode one <laughs> and never gotten to, even though it's uh, a seminal uh, figure in 20th century espionage. We've referred to uh, him in passing a whole lot, but never devoted a whole segment to him. So thanks to Jeff Cars, we're about to uh, give you the 101 on a very basic figure, uh, and that is Kim Philby, the uh, British intelligence operative who was, in fact, uh, working for the Soviets and defected. Uh, and he was part of a spy ring called the Cambridge Five. And I guess uh, to orient the listener to begin with, before we move on to Philby specifically, who were the known members of the Cambridge Five and roughly what impact did each of them have on uh, British security? Uh, the Cambridge Five were people who all went to Cambridge at the same time. They were members of a uh, society there called the Apostles, which was about the study of, um, uh, of making yourself an apostle of the of the classical truths, among them that sleeping with your fellow Cambridge students was awesome. Um, although Philby, I don't think, uh, did a lot of that. He probably did some just because you're at Cambridge and what are you going to do? But that's what college is for. But he uh, was there with Donald McLean, uh, Guy Burgess, Anthony Blunt, 
And we are generally sure, and by we I mean spyologists and spy historians, uh, John Carecross is the, is the uh, other, the fifth of the Cambridge Five. And uh, of those four, Guy Burgess probably did the most damage directly because he was someone who was uh, directly involved with with the Americans, with the Foreign Office. He, he ran a lot of sort of uh, operations or coordinated a lot of operations into uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, Philby, of course, ran a lot of operations into the communist empire and betrayed uh, them. And so when the CIA was like, it's weird, we can never get a guerrilla into the Soviet Union. They must have a really dedicated population that believes in communism. No, what they had was Kim Philby, you know, tipping the Soviets off. Uh, Donald McLean was a, was another foreign office guy and, uh, Blunt was an art historian. So I think he, he, he probably did the least damage. Uh, except as a cover for the other ones. And he was exposed much later than, he was, than yes. the rest. He was the Queen's art historian, in fact, which may have partially been why he was not so um, uh, so much discovered. So w- with that context, uh, let's move back in time to Kim Philby before he was recruited as an agent. Uh, who uh, was he to begin with? He begins, and, and I think this is the most important and kind of the funnest thing about Kim Philby. I mean, there's a lot of I mean, for a horrible traitor, there's a lot of fun things about Kim Philby, but he's the son of Sinjin Philby, who is uh, Harry St. John Philby, to use the full-on uh, uh, version, or actually there's fuller than that. But Sinjin Philby is a, uh, wait for it, also a traitor. He is the guy who is a British uh, foreign office and India office specialist. Kim, uh, Kim is born in India. He's named, um, uh, well, he's... He's named Harold, but he's nicknamed Kim after the uh, great spy character in the great Rudyard Kipling novel, Kim. Um, uh, and so Philby uh, betrays British interests in Arabia to set up the Saud- the, the Saudis as uh, lords of the peninsula and then sells out the British oil companies to the American oil companies so that they can get the rights to Saudi Arabian oil, not the British. And mostly just because... He's steamed at the British for screwing up the Middle East, and that will not be the first or the last time that someone is, <laughs> although it's less common that it be a British person, I guess. So uh, Kim Philby is raised in this sort of exotic east of Suez atmosphere of um, uh, souks and, and caravans arise and whatnot, and then he's, you know, uh, popped off to go to, um, uh, to to school, Indian civil service schools, Westminster School, and then he goes to uh, Trinity uh, College, Cambridge, where, of course, he falls in with the Cambridge Five. And in addition, uh, he falls in with a communist uh, recruiter, Maurice Dobb, who is working for Willy Munzenberg, who is one of the great, great, great Soviet agents of influence. And his job is just to, even if he doesn't recruit anyone, he wants everyone who graduates with a fine arts degree, basically, everyone who's going to ever work in journalism in the West to at least have been exposed to and ideally uh, indoctrinated into uh, the Stalinist party line. And Munzenberg does a huge amount of damage to the West in the way that you can't even really um, uh, put a number on, because even if no one ever works for the uh, Soviets, you know, outright for money selling secrets, if Munzenberg has gotten them to the point where they believe Pravda and they don't believe um, uh, the Chicago Tribune, then the Soviets have won that fight without ever having to spend a nickel for it. So he's already in that milieu. And then he recruit he is recruited uh, probably in Austria, but possibly somewhere else by a number of NKVD agents. I, I think his first uh, handler is a honey trap named Litzy Friedman. Um, and she 
sets him up as a courier um, who sort of runs off the books stuff for various Soviet front organizations. And then he winds up, you know, being, he passes that test. He gets passed up the line and up the line and up the line until eventually he runs right into a full on uh, Russian uh, resident, uh, a guy named Anatoly Gorsky who, who runs him. And so uh, what role does he wind up playing in the uh, security establishment? Uh, well, he is told to um, uh, join a pro-Nazi group so that he will draw the eyes of our old friend Maxwell Knight and be brought in as a person of interest. And then once he is inside the sort of uh, clubbable sphere of the Secret Services, he says, no, I, I hate the Nazis now. I want to work for Britain. They put him in... Uh, uh, the, uh, in MI6, uh, the SIS, and he begins to rise in rank through the SIS because it turns out he's very good at being a spy. And when you have a guy who's, uh, willing to, you know, stay late and go to all the meetings and go out and make sure to, to run all the agents himself, then that's the guy that gets promoted. And he keeps going up and up and up and up. And eventually he is, I think, um, second in charge of MI6 dealings with America. Or he is, is some very, very high ranking post in MI6. And it, there's, there's a period in the late forties when he is being sort of sounded out and tipped for maybe he's the guy that they're going to have run MI6 in a couple of terms. Like they're going to have this guy is going to take over, but then you, Philby, will move up to be deputy director and then you'll get to be a full on director. So he is, he is on the golden track. He's got the OBE. Um, uh, in 1946, he is definitely picked for something higher. So even if his formal classification is that he's, you know, you know, you're just in charge of operations in Turkey, he's actually got clearance for higher stuff because he's being groomed to move up. Right. And speaking of people that we've mentioned before, uh, James Jesus Angleton meets him during World War II, uh, says there's something wrong with this guy. Something hinky. And, and uh, passes that opinion along, but no one listens to him. Uh, so how uh, long does Philby go before he's finally exposed? This is where uh, treason meets the British establishment and um, shakes hands and sits down to a lengthy dinner. Uh, Philby goes all the way up until Guy Burgess uh, is a drunk, horrible person, uh, is beginning to expose part of the Cambridge Five ring. The FBI and the nascent NSA have been tapping various Soviet signal intelligence. And, and when is this roughly? This is in the for, uh, 50s, uh, late 40s. The Venona uh, Project is reading Soviet radio signals and, and decrypting them. And they know that there's spies in the uh, – there's leaks from the British embassy uh, because they, they're arresting people and they're still not – staying inside the loop. So they know that something's going on at the British embassy. They figure out it's Guy Burgess. They brace Guy Burgess. Uh, Philby has to start exposing himself to cover up Guy Burgess. Um, uh, he has to warn McLean to get out. And as he begins to uh, help out McLean and Burgess, that's when he sort of exposes himself. And so in um, uh, uh, 1951, they say, okay, Burgess and McLean have just fled to Russia. You were at Cambridge with them. You vouched for them. You've been on their side. We're going to bring you in for a little routine questioning. And it turns out a little routine questioning is just what Kim Philby does not need. So he basically <laughs> resigns before they can get to the second degree of routine questioning. And once he resigns, then everyone at MI6 who said, no, Kim Philby's our guy. We should be promoting him all the time. What do they do? They say, 
oh, it's probably just a big misunderstanding. Let's keep using him for spy work. Yes. So <laughs> this would embarrass us. So <laughs> yes. let's just proceed as if we weren't wrong. Let's let's keep on going. And so he can't get official MI6 work, but all of them can give him off the books stuff. So he becomes sort of an agent in place in uh, Lebanon, where his dad lives, and they sort of shoot him, you know, sort of unofficial cover, like uh, working for the Observer or for the Economist, and he goes around and he writes articles, and so that gives him his his stipend, his that lets them pay him off the books, and then they run him just as sort of a, hey, if you see anything in Lebanon, let us know, and of course, you know, we don't know what he's passing to them, because the MI6 has not you know, open up their files on Philby, nor will they ever. And uh, <laughs> because there's just going to be a lot of my bad written in crayon, followed by, you know, single bullets left in desks. Yes. And things are <laughs> happening on a on one level down of, of officialness, too. So there's probably a lot of, uh, of verbal stuff going on that's not being recorded. But then finally, there's a d- defection uh, to the CIA. And Galitzin basically just says, Yes, th- there's more than two traitors in British intelligence, and hint, it's Kim Philby. And so the <laughs> CIA basically is about to sort of, you know, either brace him in Lebanon or maybe grab him in Lebanon to do uh, standard CIA interrogation, which is much meaner than standard MI6 interrogation, uh, certainly because they didn't go to school with him. Uh, if he'd gone to Yale, it would be a whole different deal. Yes, it does involve withholding the watercress sandwiches. But, um, uh, but since he's a dirty foreigner, anything can happen. So Philby basically spends 1962 on um uh, on tenterhooks and then in 1963 just scampers uh and defects to Moscow for reals. So after 1963 he is uh Gishinkto, he's out of the intelligence world and he's off in in Moscow living in his little Moscow apartment with his order of the of the red banner or whatever. And the word is and again who knows what you can trust but the word is that the Soviets suspect that he's still an MI6 agent. So they don't let him run the British desk, which is what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a colonel in the KGB and have a car and and go around and be awesome. And instead, they're like, you will sit in your stupid apartment and you'll wait to be debriefed by us all the damn time. Yeah. We'll put you on a stamp. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, which is just, uh, I think, just sensible precaution. No, I mean, I'm first of all, I'm in favor of anything that annoys Kim Philby. But second of all, I mean, I don't believe there is a, g- a genuine, honest to God, school of espionage historians who say, nope, he was the greatest triple agent ever. MI6 was still running him while he was in Russia. And it's like, all right, I think that that is where class ties and refusal to believe you've been bilked and buying into the myth of Philby is leading people down a primrose path. I think that, no, he was a genuine communist and the KGB was institutionally suspicious of people who were genuine communists because they knew full well that you were communist with a gun at the back of your neck and for no other reason. Uh, so in pop culture, uh, a uh, fictionalized version of the Cambridge Five, of course, is central to the core John Le Carre novels, especially Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. Uh, Apparently and- Kim Philby uh, blew John Le Carre's cover when he was in MI6, and that's why he had to... Stop being a spy. Well, there you go. There's uh, talk about uh, making uh, lemon lemonade out of lemons. Absolutely. And uh, he's uh, figures in one of your favorite novels, uh, which would be uh, Tim Powers' Declare. Yes, the the great uh, novel of occult espionage that ties Philby Pere et Phil together with Genies Mount Ararat and the secret um, uh, monster that has supported the Russian Empire. Since the days of the czars. And uh, how would you bring Philby-like uh, figure or Philby himself into 
uh, say, a Dracula dossier uh, campaign for Knights Black Agents? Well, um, we did, in fact, bring Philby into Knights Black Agents in the Zelazhny Quartet, in which the uh, the great secret that the Philbys had is a, a secret of uh, vampiric significance, and I don't want to spoil it, but it's really awesome. Um, and Philby's career is sort of written around our vampire story in the same way that Powers writes it around the Jin story in Declare. For a straight-up Dracula dossier uh, story, you can have Philby being the guy who is um, uh, put in charge of Edom, for example, and that Philby's defection in 1963 to the Russians is how the Russians get, you know, the, the full-on knowledge and confirmation of the vampire project. So they begin their own vampire project, and that lets you explain why the Russian vampire project has been around for 20 or 40 years. Um, Philby could have run the guy who becomes the, the, the mole in 1977 in the canonical mole hunt in the Dracula dossier. You can pull that guy back and say, the guy that they accused has a connection to Kim Philby. Is that too obvious? Is that the reason that they accused him? Because we'd believe it because of the Philby connection, or is there something else going on? Uh, once you start asking questions about the history of espionage, you can never answer them because obviously all the answers are desperately secret and on fire usually. So uh, before we uh, head to our final segment, is there a uh, Philby anecdote that uh, got left out with our chronological survey? Um, the Philby and I mean, there's so many of them in Declare that I almost want to say, just read Declare and there will be beautiful Philby anecdotes uh, aplenty. But you won't know which one of ones of them are made up. Uh, you, um, well, actually, the interesting thing about that is P uh, Powers gives a fairly lengthy afterward in which he describes which ones are made up. And it oh, well, turns out go. not to be the ones you thought were made up necessarily. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> yes, pretty much the, the, the most incredible <laughs> stories are always the true ones. Yes. Um, so I think that uh, Philby has, I mean, he's got adventures in the Spanish Civil War, for example, when an artillery shell falls on his car. And I think that if you're doing anything in the Spanish Civil War, you can have Kim Philby running around as a fun GMC in the background. And then uh, you can be asking yourself, is he working for MI6 yet? Is he working for the Soviets? What's what's this young Kim Philby doing who somehow is immune to artillery shells? What's about that guy? Uh, right. Oh, well, uh, I think it's time, as I suggested, to uh, move it along. So let's do that. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly. Or Tales from Failed Anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid Zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. 
How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, so let's ask Ken and Robin. Colbe and many Patreon co-conspirators ask Ken and Robin to continue the existential role-playing session of Brian Harker and Eric the Lava Lamp. Robin, do you want to do the previously on button? Uh, yeah, just uh, briefly. I uh, When we did this in episode 166, which you can go back to to find the uh, first episode, uh, I was not expecting to uh, want to do a, a follow-up to it, and I'm... Uh, Slightly trepidatious. Uh, I remember <laughs> being a kid and watching the Friendly Giant uh, kids program on the CBC. And every so often, instead of story time with uh, Jerome the Giraffe and Rusty the Rooster, they would have a bunch of like moth-eaten cat puppets come and play music, meaning puppets would just move around while they played terrible uh, library music. And I was always uh, <laughs> Canada, uh, ladies and gentlemen, at, Canada. <laughs> yeah, I was always angry at Music Day. So I'm uh, somewhat leery that this will become the, the Music Day. Of, uh, of the Ken and Robin podcast. So if you're a Patreon supporter, let us know in comments uh, on the uh, show notes to this episode uh, whether you would like Brian Harker and Eric the Lava Lamp to become a regular segment or whether you would never like to hear from them again. But let's, and, and uh, don't be shy. If these are, if these are moth-eaten cat puppets to you, absolutely, uh, because the, often the loudest voices are the pro voices in uh, positive environments like the Ken and Robin comment section. So this is your opportunity to get that negativity out if you don't like it, because this is a segment, people. And as you've seen before, segments will metastasize if we Indeed, don't yes. if we don't spray some uh, some roundup on them. So uh, for those of you who did hear episode uh, 166 and wish to be refreshed on it, uh, the initial run of this featured uh, the uh, somewhat woebegone figure of Brian Harker, who was uh, reduced to getting a weird job with a company called the Roos Corporation. A, a well-dressed man called Mr. Staff drove him uh, to a rocky uh, sort of empty field in a desolate uh, non-urban landscape in order to go into a sort of a freestanding trailer, the kind that you are sometimes turned into offices on construction sites, and was instructed uh, to A, sort out all of the files, and B, not let anything bad happen to the lava lamp, at which point uh, Mr. Staff uh, said, if you need any debriefing, I'll be back at five. Well, everything is self-explanatory. Don't worry about it. Uh, Brian heads on in to the office, finds out that it's totally blacked out from the outside, and uh, as he begins to sort through these folders containing documents, finds out that they're not in English. They're not even in the Roman alphabet. They've got these weird Mayan or Olmec style uh, sigils on them. And uh, as uh, he began working, the lava lamp began to speak to him, especially when a big thump hit the side of the office and he realized that he was being confronted with some eerie being, an unearthly force, the shadow man who uh, lay outside the... Uh, a trailer and was trying to get in. And finally, uh, uh, there was an altercation. Uh, the uh, lava lamp was nearly knocked over and uh, Brian daringly left the office to go find out what's going on. And as he began to pursue the shadow man, he found him uh, some distance away, uh, lying dead uh, with a knife in his back. 
in the meantime, he uh, did acquire an item in the office, a metal ring with a grabber on it uh, that Eric refers to as uh, the neutralizer. And we now uh, rejoin the action as Brian stands there over the body of this eerie, mysterious, sort of half-visible uh, shadow man who has a toy gun in his holster. He's wearing a duster and a cowboy hat. And so now, what does Brian Harker choose to do? Okay. Um, I look around the desolate landscape, see if there's any more signs of any other shadow mans or some sort of stalking uh, entities uh, approaching. Uh, you just sort of hear uh, sort of an unearthly quiet. You hear the rustling of uh, uh, leaves as the leaves start to turn uh, from uh, late summer to early autumn. You see a, a house on the distant horizon, a sort of white clapboard house, but you don't see any signs of any other hostile entities. Okay. I go over to the shadow man and I examine him to see if there are any uh, identification on him, anything that will tell me any more about the shadow man than what the so far heretofore uncooperative Eric has offered. And you find a, uh, uh, in his wallet is a, a credit card, a driver's license, photo ID, there's a uh, an affinity card for uh, Holiday Inn rest. Uh, sorry, uh, Holiday Inns, uh, and uh, there's a, a small amount of cash, but they're all in the name of Brian Harker, <gasps> and the photo ID is your photo. Do I still have my wallet? Yes, you do. Are the documents uh, the same, or is this Brian Harker have different uh, addresses and details? And I mean, I Brian Harker do not carry an affinity card to Holiday Inn, I presume, or is there one now in my wallet that I did not suspect previously existed? Uh, you do not have a Holiday Inn affinity card. Okay. And you, uh, by comparing the the other documents are superficially identical, but uh, you can tell that they are forgeries in uh -huh. the, the Shadow Man's wallet. All right. Um, uh, well, I take the, uh, the toy gun and uh, stick it in the back of my belt, right? Yep. Um, and I ask, uh, Eric, you, you've, you've seen shadow man, uh, shadow men before you recognize the, the, this phenomenon. Well, to be perfectly precise, I've sensed their presence before from the safety of the office, but I've never beheld him. And to be honest, I find him quite frightening. Well, he, he, he can't hurt you now. Uh, he look, and I sort of hold the lava lamp to sort of, you know, meaninglessly. To, well, he, to he looks kind of undead. What if he rises again? Well, he's sort of melty now. Look at him. Plus, I've got his gun. Are you going to take the knife as well? Uh, the knife is stuck in him. I don't think that was his knife. Are you just going to leave it there? It might come in handy. It might come in handy. Um, uh, but on the other hand, carrying a murder weapon around, uh, even if it has what may turn out to be my blood on it, is... Uh, I don't think that that's a good idea, but what I will do is I'll, uh, I, I take the knife and I, I throw it as far as I can into the, into the scrub, right? So, so as you, uh, wrap your fingers around it to pull it out, you feel that it's very comfortable in your hand and, mm. uh, it feels, it's a uh, knife. The, the, the feel of that knife in your hand is strangely familiar to you. Strangely familiar or just strangely comfortable? Uh, both comfortable and familiar. Hmm. Eric, it, this, it awakens a sense memory. A sense memory of me of holding having this held knife. it before. Right, uh, Eric. This knife uh, has been in my hand before. What do you What do you say to that? I'd say that seems like an important clue, Brian. Yes, but a clue to what? Uh, you uh, You don't seem to have even you You don't, you don't seem to willing to tell me even the parameters of the mystery. Well, I suppose I can review the, the facts so far. The shadow men 
are trying to destroy me and uh they stole the files yeah and because the the sigils vanished right they didn't right. physically steal the files but they stole the information from the files and the they must be the enemies of the roost corporation in some way and uh i suppose we need to go somewhere in order to get more information what about what about that white house over there Maybe maybe they, that's where the shadow men are. Do you do you sense them in that White House, Eric? Not per se, but it, <laughs> it seems it seems <laughs> numinous in some way. Well, I mean, how many houses have you seen, Eric? I mean, you've been in that in that uh, trailer. Maybe you're just excited to see a, a, a structure of any kind. It is the only thing I can see that's of any interest that we haven't explored. Uh, well, you you make it you make a sound point, Eric, uh, and you you seem much more cooperative now. Suddenly, um, uh, the, I'm uh, perfectly cooperative if you ask me a question that I have the answer to, or if you ask me to make a conjecture, I can conject all day long, if that's what you prefer. Uh, I don't think I prefer that at all, Eric. I'm going to and get There the... might be an outlet. There might be an outlet in the house that you could plug me into, because I'm starting to get slower. Oh, the best news yet. I take the hat off the body and I put it on, because I don't want to walk around out here in the uh, mud. In the desert without uh, protection of the sun. God forbid I should start hallucinating. And uh, I believe that going towards that house, I, I can walk there and, and walk back in, pl in plenty of time. It's not like a mile away, right? Yeah, it's just uh, it's just maybe like a quarter mile, I'd say. Okay, all right. So I will um, uh, I will walk towards the house. Um, I will have the neutralizer in my hand. And, uh, and did you chuck the knife away? I, I I did chuck the knife away. I have the neutralizer in my hand. And uh, the gun in my the toy gun in my belt. So I'm I'm walking towards the house, keeping my eye open, especially for the sorts of uh, of uh, uh, heat distortiony phenomena that imply more shadow mans might arrive. And so uh, as you approach the house, uh, it too begins to feel familiar to you uh, mm -hmm. in uh, the way that a a building in a dream can seem. Uh, like a place that you've lived before, even though it's really sort of a, your brain reconfiguring a bunch of different yeah. places that you're familiar with. Was was the knife like a kitchen knife or a fighting knife? Um, it was like a, a wooden-handled uh, kitchen knife. All right. So uh, uh, no points for guessing what's missing from the butcher block when we go into this house. Uh, all right. I go up to the house and see if there's like a, a, a sign. Is there mail in the mailbox? Is there any indication from the exterior of to who lives here? Um, so uh, there is mail uh, in the mailbox. And uh, what urgent thing were you uh, worried about before you came here to, to, to work today? Uh, money. I was wor worried about money because I was on my uppers. I, I desperately needed this Roos Corporation job if I was going to even, you know, be able to survive for another week or month in the hellish Los Angeles of my memory. Um, and you uh, find a check in the mailbox uh, or anyway, it's one of those envelopes with a cello thing, and it mm -hmm. obviously looks like a, yeah. a check, a paycheck. And it's uh, made out uh, in uh, the name of your father, uh, Jonathan Harker. Mm. Okay. Um, uh, but this isn't my dad's house. My dad doesn't live in a white frame house in the middle of the desert, right? Um, you uh, uh, did live in a, in a similar house uh, back when your dad was, uh, was uh, drinking and things were going really badly. Mm -hmm. And your mind, uh, so what incident does your mind flash back to, uh, involving your, uh, drunken, abusive dad in the house you grew up in? Um, there was a time when I was, uh, 
uh, sitting at the, on the, uh, on the, on the, on the rug on the floor, uh, too close to the TV and watching a monster movie because it was scary. So I had to be up close to it. And, uh, dad was, was drunk and he was like, turn that shit off. And he, and he yelled at me and I didn't have anywhere to go except closer and closer to the screen of the movie because I couldn't go back into the living room because that's where he was yelling at me. And I don't even remember what happened. I was so, I was so just so terrified between the movie and the yelling that I just blacked out and, and didn't remember that scene at all. And what, what happened after it? I, I, I must've, you know, woke up in my bed or something, but I, I really don't have any memory of the rest of that night. Uh, so you hear the TV blaring, uh, inside the house and, uh, it seems to be that movie again. Oh no, this isn't good. Well, I, uh, I back away from the house because, I don't want to go back to that trauma room. That seems awful. Um, I'm going to sort of walk around the house to see if there's shadow men hiding near it. Um, you uh, don't see any shadow men hiding around the house. But as you walk around, you get a glimpse of uh, a shadow man who seems to have the uh, basic silhouette and uh, uh, a distorted version of the features of your, your father. Mm. Uh, I suppose we could have guessed that that was coming. I, I've forgotten. Do I know how how to work the neutralizer? You have uh, not really figured out what it does yet. Okay. I'm going to um, uh, stand by that window where I can glimpse that shadow man, and I'm going to hold uh, the neutralizer and point it at that shadow man, and I'm going to think, uh, uh, turn off the TV, turn off the TV, turn off the TV. And uh, there's a puff of smoke. You see, like, an electrical flash. And uh, you hear, uh, what the rotten TV? And the shadow man, who uh, looks very much, uh, has a silhouette and frame of your father, uh, heads over to begin to pound on the TV to try and uh, get it working again. Excellent. Well, this is great. I'm going to, uh, this is interesting. I'm going to back away from the window, holding the neutralizer towards the window. And I'm going to think, um, uh, uh, hold it and point it at the, at the shadow man and say, uh, sleep it off, sleep it off, sleep it off, sleep it off. Which is of course what I always wanted my dad to be doing when he came home drunk. I just wanted him to go to bed and sleep it off, sleep it off. And, uh, he storms over the window rips open the, the lace curtains and goes, Brian, you contemptible little worm, get in here and do your chores. And his uh, eyes are just burrowing into your soul and you feel yourself sweating bullets. So apparently the sleep it off does not work as well as the turn off the TV. Um, okay. I say, uh, in a minute, dad, I have to, uh, I have to put this, uh, uh, I have to put this lava lamp down first. Bring the lava lamp in here. Plug it in next to the television. I say, um, uh, that's, that's not a, that's not a working plug, Dad. You know, you know that. Well, then why don't you fix the plug? Quincy's son could fix a plug. Quincy's, uh, Quincy's, uh, Quincy lives in a house with working plugs, Dad. He's still handy. He's not useless. Get in here. I need you to, I need you to make me a Manhattan. That's the last thing that's going to happen. Um, uh, although a Manhattan's not a bad idea. Anyway, I, um, uh, I leave as though I'm going to go to the front door. Um, uh, and instead of going to the front door, I'm going to, uh, sort of wait by it with the neutralizer and, 
and then the toy gun, and the, I'll put Eric down on uh, the on the ground so that I don't drop him. Okay, and so you're uh, waiting, and what are you waiting for? Well, either Dad is going to come out of the door to out the door to find out what's happening. Not Dad, Shadow Man is going to come out the door and find out what's happening, or he's going to sort of slip back into whatever the routine was that he was doing before I got there, and I will uh, know more after that. And which of those two things are you hoping will happen? I'm hoping that he uh, that he just goes back into sort of the the, the, the sort of playback mode that he's been in. Um, and so you uh, hear some more banging, and uh, you hear like a ow, as if there's been like he's been messing with the outlet. But then the movie comes back on, the TV starts blaring again, and uh, you uh, hear him sort of snoring in front of the uh, the movie. Okay, now I'm going to go in, but I'm going to go in like I used to go in when I was a kid and avoid the creaky step and, you know, open the door, you know, a third of the way and then two thirds of the way so that it doesn't make that noise when the um, uh, when the uh, air thing catches. So just sneak in like I used to when I was a kid and he was asleep. And uh, you do, in fact, manage to sneak in uh, and uh, you uh, are standing uh there's a room between you and you see in the uh, kitchen, there's stacks and stacks of the documents with the glyphs on them again, uh, all in their folders, uh, piled up on the uh, on the kitchen table. Um, is there a knife missing from the kitchen knife rack? Uh, there is. There is a knife missing from the kitchen knife rack. Oh, fantastic. Um, okay. I go over to those folders and I'm going to look around to see if there's like a, a kitchen garbage bag or something that I can put them all in and then sneak away. Um, so you uh, manage to do that. Uh, you don't disturb uh, the uh, your titanically uh, snoring father. And uh, you then uh, have a garbage bag full of the files. Right. Okay. Um, uh, I'm going to take these files in their garbage bag. I'm going to back out again very slowly and very sneakily like I did when I was a kid. And uh, pick up Eric and scamper back to the trailer. And uh, you see that the trailer is on fire. Oh, the trailer's on fire, eh? Well, good thing I wasn't there. Um, okay. Uh, well, that that seems like the sort of thing that might cause Mister Staff to come back early if he, you know, looks at an alarm or something, finds out that the trailer's on fire. Um, either way, uh, keeping the files safe is my job, and keeping the lamp safe is my job, and I'm doing those things. And when Mister Staff comes back and finds it on fire. It can be, hey, guess what? The Shadow Man set it on fire, Mr. Staff. Maybe you should have put that in the employee briefing. Uh, you see uh, leaned up to the uh, sort of ramshackle uh, rotting fence around the house. Uh, you see uh, the childhood bicycle that you always wished you could have, but uh, it, uh, never uh, got you saved up your money to buy this one. It was at the store, but then your dad broke into your uh, uh, hidden cache of money and you never saw that money again. You never saw the bike in there. Waiting for you, gleaming, is the bike. Well, um, if Pee Wee Herman has taught us anything, it is to seize the bike. Um, so, does it have a basket on it for the lava lamp? Uh, it does have a, a capacious basket that'll fit the lava lamp and the files. Excellent. Well, that is what we will do. We will uh, load up the lava lamp and the files. I will... Um, uh, is the ring on the neutralizer, uh, it's like a foot in diameter, so it's probably big enough to slip around my wrist, right? Yep, you can do that. I will slip the um, neutralizer around my wrist, and I will bicycle back to the site of the burning trailer, though not uh, directly to it in case there are shadow men about. Uh, and uh, as you bike past, 
you see Mr. Staff being pulled out of his car uh, by uh, the Shadow Man and being stabbed. Oh, okay. I, um, uh, I, I pull up the bike, I point the toy gun at the Shadow Man, and I fire at him. And uh, the uh, Shadow Men uh, take out their uh, AK-47s and just uh, begin to let it rip. And uh, you've uh, got the choice of uh, uh, standing in the path of those bullets or uh, trying to bike away as fast as you possibly can. Are those uh, toy AK-47s or real AK-47s? They look pretty real. They look pretty real and sound pretty real, and the bullets are snipping off the foliage in a real way. Indeed, yes. Okay. I'm at the very least going to bike around the back of the trailer so that I've got a burning trailer between me and the Shadow Mans. Uh, That doesn't take them very long to walk around the trailer. Are there uh, two of them or one of them? There's uh, four of them. Four of them? Yeah. That seems like a lot. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Um, The toy gun didn't seem to affect them, or or do I think I missed the the crowd of them? Um, It wasn't clear. It wasn't clear. Okay. Okay. well, the thing is, if the four of them even get into close quarters with me, I'm, I'm toast, right? There's, yeah. there's way too many of them. All right. I'm going to get on the bike and, uh, try and bike, uh, towards, uh, Mr. Staff's car. So that means biking back around them, right? Yeah, there's right. the car. There's them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're following me around the, the trailer. So you're trying to go in a circle, basically. Go in a circle. Yeah. Get, get back to the car. And then ideally have the car between me and them when I'm on the road. And, uh, one of them clotheslines you. Mm. And you lose consciousness. And that concludes <gasps> dun, dun, dun. this episode of uh, Brian and his lava lamp, Eric. I certainly hope the lava lamp didn't break. Uh, you don't know. You're unconscious. We will only know if people actually want a third segment of this. And on that uncertain cliffhanger-like note, uh, we conclude yet another podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors! Atlas Games! Pelgrane Press! Dice! Rendezvous with Randomness! Arc Dream! Dark Tower! And Pro Fantasy Software! Music, as always, is by James Semple! Audio editing by Rob Borges! Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Stand shoulder-to-shoulder with such August patrons as... Peter Nix! Sean Krauss! Urs Blumentritt! Wayne Peterson! And Chris McLaren. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>